tried to, uh, in, in over the last uh, few weeks with uh, uh, measured success, <laughs> send, a, send an email out to the church, to you all, uh, ahead of our uh, uh, sermon on Sunday to give kind of a preview of where we're going to be, get your heart and mind, help you to get your heart and mind uh, uh, centered on the text that we'll be looking at. This last week I sent one of those out and I mentioned the problem that many of us uh, have when we sometimes go to the grocery store with a list in mind and leave the grocery store with lots of other things that were not on that list. I don't know how many times, I don't know how many times it has happened to me that I've, I know I need to go to the grocery store or to the hardware store to pick up, you know, milk and eggs and bread or, or nuts and bolts and a new screwdriver. And I end up leaving with, you know, kumquats and candy bars and cooking gadgets or uh, a new drill or something like that. Go for one thing, a simple thing, a basic thing, and leave with something altogether. We uh, often will attribute this to just spacing out, you know, as we go. I just, I just totally spaced what I was supposed to do, you know. Um, but in the life of the church, when we intend to do one thing and end up doing another, we don't call it spacing out, we call it mission drift. We call it losing, losing sight of the main thing. When God builds a people, and particularly as God rebuilds a people, at bringing them out of exile from Babylon back to Jerusalem. He rebuilds his people to be a mission focused people. Not to be a mission drifting people, not to be a spacey kind of people, not to be a people who forget the main thing, but to be a people who are focused upon the mission that he has given them. In Ezra 5 and chapter 6 today, we'll see that through the urging of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, And through the provision of God, through the Persian king Darius, the Jews who have returned from exile to Jerusalem will complete the building of the temple. And they will celebrate that uh, that task. They will celebrate the completion of that mission with repentance and remembrance. Here's what I want for us to remember from this text today, to learn from this text today, that God's people share in his success when they focus on his mission and celebrate his victories. God's people share in God's successes when they focus on God's mission and celebrate God's victories. I want us to commit, be led to commit to being a, to to being focused personally as individuals, as members of this church and, and corporately as a church to the mission of God. I want us to be reminded of the mission that God has placed before not just the Jews in Ezra 5 and 6 in rebuilding the temple, but the mission that God has placed in front of his church. And I want for us as followers of Jesus to be recommitted to it. We have a long text before us this morning, Ezra 5 and 6. We'll not read all of it. I'll, uh, I learned a lesson from last week. Sometimes it doesn't help to read Uh, ancient Persian letters with everybody standing up. So we will read a few verses and then I will continue to refer to the text as we move along. Stand with me, would you, as we honor God by reading his word. Ezra chapter five, we'll begin with verses one through five. Last we left off at the end of chapter four, verse 24, we read, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped because of the opposition that they faced. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. May God add blessing to the reading of his word and to his people as we study it. You may be seated. As we come to Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we find first this truth, that mission drift 
losing sight, losing focus of the most important thing is often easier than you think. Mission drift is easier than you think. It happens particularly when God's people lose focus. At Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, the work on the temple had been stopped. We saw from the end of Ezra chapter 4, well, we looked at Ezra 4 last week, and we saw the opposition that was being mounted against the people of Israel that were, as they were trying to rebuild the temple. And by the end of chapter 4, all work on the temple, after the laying of the foundation, stops. And there is a 15-year gap between the end of Ezra 4 and the beginning of Ezra 5. For 15 years, nothing happened on on the Temple Mount. So, toward the end of those 15 years, God calls two prophets, two men, to speak on his behalf to the people of Israel, and especially to their leaders, to Zerubbabel and Jeshua. These prophets' names are Haggai and Zechariah. Each of them have books that are named after them that, uh, that bear their message from God to the people in the Bible. They're towards the end of the Old Testament. Haggai and Zechariah come to Jeshua and Zerubbabel, that chief priest and that, uh, that governor of the people of Israel who have returned to Jerusalem, and they call them on the carpet for neglecting the call of God on his people. What was the call of God for his people? Bringing them out of exile back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that God may be worshipped and that he might be glorified among his people. What has happened for 15 years? Nothing. No mission effectiveness. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, uh, toward the, uh, the end of the Old Testament. Find the book of, of Haggai. It's a short book. It's only, only two chapters long. It's probably easy to skip over. And if, uh, if you're like me, your Bible pages are sticking together for some unknown reason. There we go. Haggai, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and then 7 and 8. Listen to the message of Haggai to Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Haggai speaks for the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people, the people of Israel, say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your own paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, harvested little, you eat. You never have enough. You drink, but never have your own fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified says the Lord. What's the problem at the beginning of Ezra chapter 5? The problem is, like Haggai says, the people of Israel have been opposed by the surrounding nations, have been dissuaded, discouraged from continuing to build the temple, and instead they've stopped building the Lord's house and they started building their own houses. In fact, they're luxurious houses. Haggai says you, you, you live in your own paneled houses while the house of the Lord is still left in ruins. What's the deal? Why have you lost focus? Why have you lost sight of what God has called you to do? Mission drift is easier than you think. It can happen when you're just discouraged a little bit from the outside. It can happen when, when, when some people uh, maybe seek to, to keep you quiet uh, in regard to speaking about Christ and your faith in the workplace or in the community. And instead of pressing forward in perseverance and boldness and courage, knowing what God has called us to do, sometimes it's just easier to build comfortable bubbles for ourselves, to build paneled houses of our own design, and not to be about the work that God has done. Mission drift happens when God's people lose focus. But thankfully, Haggai speaks this word to Jeshua and Zerubbabel, and Jeshua and Zerubbabel listen. How often, in, in the course of the Old Testament, when a prophet speaks to a king or to a leader, do they actually listen and do what the prophet has said? Not very often. This is a pretty rare occurrence, where the leaders hear the word of the prophet and heed the word of the prophet and say, you know what, you're right, Haggai. You're right, Zechariah. We have missed it. We have lost focus. Let's get back to it. And so they start building again. And as soon as they start building again, 
there seems to be maybe the hints of more opposition, more adversity coming against the people. Two Persian governors or two Persian representatives here are mentioned, Tatanai and Shethar Bozani. These are people who were giving oversight to what is called in, in the Bible the province beyond the river. It was everything west of the Euphrates River in terms of the Persian kingdom. Tatanai and Shethar Bozani were representatives to King Darius, the king of Persia. Now it's interesting because when King Darius took the throne in 522 BC, uh, the, the kingdom of Persia was, uh, was beginning to be kind of fractured and threatened by different uh, uprisings and rebellions around the Persian kingdom. And so very early in Darius's reign, he was occupied with trying to uh, quell all of these various rebellions and gain control over his kingdom again. So all the way in the far western extent of the, uh, of, the, of the empire of Persia, you have now in Jerusalem a group of people building a large structure with big stones. It looks fairly well fortified, and these people are really organized. And so now Tatanai and Shethar Bozani, representatives of King Darius, are looking at this building project and they're going, what are they really doing here? They say it's a temple, but it could easily be a fortress, right? Could could be a, a castle to hunker down in and, and to foment rebellion. So Tatanai and Shethar Bozani go to Zerubbabel, go to Jeshua, and, and, and they ask a, a fairly innocent, straightforward question. They say, Who gave you a decree to build this house? Who told you you could do this? Who gave you permission? And by the way, who are the names? What are the names of the ones who are building it? The intent of Tatanai and Shethar Bozani is then to take this news, uh, take what they have heard from the uh, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, and uh, send a letter to Darius, the king, and get a word back from Darius as to whether or not uh, they should stop the building or allow it to continue. The Jews, again, are being confronted. It's not quite opposition yet, but it could turn into adversity for them. And in response, they don't stop building. Notice, the eye of the, uh, but the eye of their God, verse 5, was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now, when Tatanai and Shethar Bozani send a letter to Darius, they tell Darius what the uh, people of the Jews had said in response. And you can find this in chapter 5, beginning in verses 11 through uh, toward the end of that chapter. And the response of the Jews to the question, who gave you a decree to do this and what are your names, who's leading this effort, was was essentially this. The, The God of all creation, the God of heaven, commanded us to build this house that was once previously built by a great king of ours, Solomon. But Solomon was unfaithful to the Lord, and, his, and after his death, the kingdom was split, and the, the various kings of those two kingdoms in the north and the south, they were unfaithful to the Lord. They worshipped false gods and included the worship of false gods in the temple of God himself, in this house that we are rebuilding. And so God, as a discipline, as punishment upon his people, sent them into exile because he would not have his worship profaned He would not have his worship polluted by worship to other gods. And so we've been in exile these last almost 70 years. And now God has brought us back to this place so that we can rebuild his house for worship to him again. That's the news that Tatanai and Shethar Bozani send to Darius. And they say in their letter at the end of chapter 5, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of the God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Mission drift is easier than you think. It happens when God's people lose focus. At the beginning of chapter 5, God's people are without focus. But God brings focus to them through the prophets, and they recommit to the work. They recommit to the mission. Mission drift happens when we set our eyes on something else other than God's mission. But mission drift is always remedied by God's intervention. Do you see? God intervenes in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, when he sends his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, spokesmen for God to say, hey, get back to business, get back to what I called you here to do. 
God intervenes by continuing to set his eye on his people, chapter 5, verse 5. That's a, a kind of a metaphoric way of saying God was continuing to provide for his people so that even though Tatanai and Shethar Bozani may have posed opposition to their building efforts, the eye of God being on them gave Tatanai and Shethar Bozani wisdom enough to say, you know what, go ahead and keep building. We think it's safe and, and keep building until we hear from Darius uh, you know, to make you to stop. It's interesting because God continues to intervene to keep his people mission focused, even as he sovereignly guides Darius's intentions. Look at chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 12. We see in verses 1 through 5 the letter that those two governors from the province beyond the river finally reaches Darius. And when it reaches Darius, Darius makes a decree. He says, search the kingdom for this decree from Cyrus. I, I've gotta, we, we've got to find what's going on. If Cyrus really told these people they could go back and, and to rebuild this temple. And so they go looking all throughout the Persian uh, empire, the Persian capital, uh, to find this uh, decree that Cyrus had made. They don't find it in the capital, but interestingly enough, as verse 2 tells us, they find it in the Persian king's summer home in Ekbatana in, a, in the province of Medea, and they find a scroll on which was written uh, the decree, the instructions from Cyrus the king, saying, yes, these people may go back. Yes, they may rebuild the temple. And oh, by the way, let them do it out of the treasury from Persia. I'm going to finance this whole thing. We know from Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that it was God who stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make this decree. And now we see that it is God who is sovereignly intervening in the life of his people for the sake of his mission to, to cause this decree that was once lost to be found again by Darius and then to lead Darius to double down on it. Look at verse 6 of chapter 6 of Ezra. Therefore, Tatanai says, uh, Darius, he writes his letter, governor of the province beyond the river and your associates who are with you. He says, keep away. Verse seven, let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, says Darius, I make a decree. In addition to Cyrus's decree, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, whatever they need, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and to pray for the life of the king and his sons. It gets better. Darius says, also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Amen. Now, if you know anything about Persian, ancient Persian law, you know that when a king makes a decree, that decree can never be undone. It can never be contravened or contradicted, even by that king himself. Now, the Jews already had a decree by King Cyrus ensuring their ability to rebuild the temple. That decree was lost somewhere in that period of time, those 15 years where nothing was happening on the temple. But then it's refound by Darius. And Darius says, hey, King Cyrus said that it can happen, so it's got to happen. And by the way, I'm putting my seal of approval on this too to make doubly sure nothing gets in the way. There are a lot of men and kings and rulers involved in providing for the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple. But it is God who is intervening all along the way. It is God who is stirring the, who stirred the heart of Cyrus, who's now stirring in the heart of Darius to, to ensure that his mission will happen without fail, that the temple will be rebuilt for worship of his name among the nations. God intervenes when there's mission drift by sending prophets. He sets his eye on his people. He sovereignly guides Darius' intention. And then God himself decrees mission success in chapter 6, verse 14. We read, the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of, God, by, by decree of the God of Israel. Wait a minute. Who's been making decrees all along the way in Ezra? Cyrus, Darius, 
Artaxerxes is mentioned. But who's first in the list of those that make decrees for the success of the building of the temple here? The God of Israel. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. And by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Right? These are just human people. Human kings that are involved in God's plan and God's intention. When we get to the beginning of Ezra 5, we see a people who have drifted from their, from their mission. It's easier than you think to lose sight of what is most important, to lose sight of the call that God has placed upon your life. It happens when you lose focus from God, but it's remedied always by God's intervention. Dear friends, we face, even as a church today in 2020, we face the temptation to drift from the mission that Christ has given to his church all the time. All the time. Just like the Jews, we can, on our way to the grocery store to get milk, eggs, and bread, be filling our carts with kumquats, candy bars, and cooking gadgets. It is incredibly important. It is imperative that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, fight mission drift. Fight mission drift with a laser-tight focus upon God who gives the mission. You see, building the temple in Jerusalem, building a work which would be completed in 515 B.C., the, building of the rebuilding of the temple is about far more than just building a house of worship. It's about Israel glorifying God among the nations. This is what God has called his people to do. Even as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt to be a, a, a kingdom of priests and a royal nation, he called them out that they might worship him among the nations, that his name would be glorified in all the world through his people. And that mission of God to be glorified, for his name to be famous in all the world through his people that he delivered by his grace, uh, it was to continue even through the ministry of, of King David and Solomon. It was to continue through that temple in Jerusalem. But the people, beginning with Solomon and those that followed after him, all the way up until God sent his people into exile, they had lost sight of the mission. They had lost sight of what it was that God had called them for, had made them for, to glorify his name among the nations. And instead, they sought to glorify themselves by adding the favor, if you will, of the gods of all the other nations for themselves, worshiping false gods in the temple that was to be dedicated to the worship of the one true God. The temple is about more than just a house of worship. The temple is about God's mission in the world, to call people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself. And so also the mission of the church today is about more than just getting people to heaven. The mission of the church is about leading others to see how we might be right with God and to worship him as the all-satisfying purpose of our lives. You see, it's, it, it's yeah. totally possible to, to drift away from the mission of God, even in evangelism, even in calling people to put faith in Christ, if the end goal that we have in our mind is just getting people out of hell and into heaven. That is part of salvation. Yes, absolutely. Eternal life with God in heaven is a benefit of salvation, but it's not the point of salvation. The point of salvation is to bring people back into loving relationship with the God who made them. God doesn't send Jesus, his own son, to bear the weight of our sin on the cross and to be raised from the dead just so we can go to a nice place when we die, dear friends. He sends his son to become sin for us that we might, by this great cosmic exchange, Jesus paying the, the penalty for our sin, a debt that we could not pay, he pays for that, and by faith in him, we take on his righteousness. We are made holy and that's far more, that's, that's far better than just heaven. That means now we know God. We're in relationship with God. We're in fellowship with God. Yeah. The mission of the church is not just about getting people out of hell and into heaven. It's about getting people out of darkness to life, out of, out of, uh, out of uh, darkness to light, out of death to life, out of a broken relationship from God to the all-satisfying, all-encompassing, love-driven, worship-riddled relationship with God that we were made for. Yeah. The gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners is far, about far more than avoiding hell and gaining heaven. Yeah. It's about being made right with God who loves you. Yeah. You see, heaven, without relationship with God, is hell just painted differently. Heaven is not heaven if there is not fellowship with God there because that is what we've been made for. 
made in his image to know, love, and worship him. And apart from relationship with him, we, we can't do what we've been made for. Now, praise God, heaven is real. Praise God, we look forward to eternal life, to being, having these bodies raised from the dead, to live forever with God in eternity. That is awesome. But the best part of heaven is not the pristine views. It's not this world made new. The best part of heaven is not seeing loved ones who have, who have died in faith in Christ before you again. The best part of heaven is seeing Jesus face to face, is knowing him. Friends, that is the mission that we must be laser focused upon. If we lose sight of that aspect of the gospel, of, of what Christ has called us to do, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. If we lose sight of the, the point of that being people made right with God in this life and for the next, then we've missed the mission entirely. If evangelism, if sharing the gospel is just about getting people fire insurance, we have done a disservice to the gospel of justification by faith alone, that we are made right with God brought back into fellowship with him, to know, love, and worship him the way we've been designed, by trusting Jesus. Mission drift is easier than you focus, is easier than you think. Mission success, though, is more glorious than you can imagine. Mission drift is easy. It's easy to lose sight of the mission. But when you keep focused on it, when the people of God focus upon God's call for them and are successful as God makes them successful, the success that they share in what God is doing is far more glorious than we can ever imagine. Look with me at Ezra chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. We read, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated. The temple has been finished. They celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. Mission success is more glorious than you can imagine. And when we are successful in the mission that God has given to us, it leads us to worship. It leads God's people to worship. This is what we see happening in verses 16 through 18 of Ezra chapter 6. As the temple is completed, the people worship. They dedicate the house of God for worship to God again, for right worship to God again. They dedicate the house through offerings of praise. And here we have 700 animals that are being slaughtered as burnt offerings, offerings of praise to God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. That's a lot of work for priests on that day. It's nothing, though, in comparison to Solomon when he uh, uh, dedicated the first temple several uh, hundred years before. At the dedication of Solomon's temple, there were slaughtered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. God, I mean, th those numbers are unfathomable to me. Yeah. I, I think about how I, I just I get queasy thinking about uh, slaughtering one animal, much less tens of thousands, but it was done. And it's done in praise. These offerings are given as whole burnt offerings to God. All of it is burnt up. Uh, the, the whole, uh, all of the flesh of the animal, the whole thing is burnt up in offering to God is to say, all of this is yours, God. We're so grateful for what you've done. This is how the people are called to worship. They worship through praise by offering these sacrifices. They worship also through repentance. Did you see that? As the priests offer not one, not two, but 12 goats as a sin offering one for each tribe of the people of Israel. In the 70 years since the temple had been destroyed until the present moment uh, in the course of Ezra, no sin offerings were able to be made. Because God determined uh, and, and directed his people to when they commit a, a sin that they know of. You can read about this in Numbers, the book of Numbers. When the, when the people of God commit a sin and they, they recognize their sin and they want to seek repentance and forgiveness, they were to take an animal to the tabernacle or to the temple after it was built. And the priests or the Levites there were to slaughter that animal as a sin offering for that person. But for 70 years, for 70 years, the sins of the people of Israel 
had, had continued to, to mount, if you will. There was no way for them to, to, physically, to physically ask for forgiveness the way that God had intended for them to do so. Now, this does not mean that those people who, who died and, and died in faith in God's promises during the exile, apart from offering sacrifices, this does not mean that they went to hell or were separated from God forever. But sin offerings were an important picture, an important uh, 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 display or drama of the deadly nature of sin in our lives. And so now here the people of God, as the temple is rebuilt, are able to physically repent again, to offer these goats as a sin offering as part of their worship. We don't often think about repentance, corporate repentance, being a, a part of the worship of God's people when we gather together. It's not often Rare, I would even say, that the people of God erupt in confession of sin and repentance as a result of responding to God's word when it has been preached. But dear friends, it's a regular part of the life of God's people, not just in the Old Testament, but the New as well. When we do what God has called us to do, when we're faithful to the mission, when God accomplishes his mission through his people, they do well to recognize that it is he, that it is God who has been successful. All success in the mission of God is for His glory. The building of the temple is for His glory. The calling of the church, the building of the church, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of every person who trusts Jesus is for God's glory. And because God's people know that that we are prone to be distracted and to be sinful and to wander off after other things that are not what God has called us primarily to do, we in turn celebrate God's success with genuine and continued repentance and corporate dedication to his mission. It is good for us when we come together on Sunday morning to sing songs of praise to God for all the blessings he has given to us in Christ and in the gospel. But Church of Jesus Christ at First Baptist West Albuquerque, it is good for us to respond on Sunday mornings in corporate worship together with repentance also. To recognize the sin that our hearts are still prone to chase after. And to say, God, I need course correction again today. I need, the, I need you to redirect the mission of my life again to, to your mission in this world, which is to be glorified among the nations as I point people to Jesus. I have missed it this week, and I've got to get straight again. Mission success is more glorious than you can imagine. It leads us to worship when we see God doing what only God can do. Mission success, though, also leads us to remembrance. Leads us to worship, leads us to remembrance. Look at Ezra chapter 6, verses 19 through 22. These are verses that I think are easy for us to pass over, but I want to try to read them with all of the emphasis that Ezra intends. On the 14th day of the month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, ritually clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful. And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria. That's a reference to, to King Darius. Assyria was an old kingdom that now Persia was in, in, uh, 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 in command over. He turned even the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. There's no better way to wrap up the reconstruction of the temple for the people of God than to celebrate the most important meal in the, in the liturgical life of his people, Passover. Yeah. You remember Passover? You remember this meal? It was first given in Exodus uh, to the people of God living as slaves in Egypt as a means of God's protection during that final plague, that angel of death that would take away the firstborn of every uh, human being and every beast that was in the land. And to, to be protected from the angel of death that would sweep through Egypt, God gave a, a, a means of protection to his people. They were to each family slaughter a lamb, an, un, an unblemished lamb, to take the blood of that lamb and to spread it on the lintels and the doorpost of their home so that every person who was inside the home at the passing over of the angel of death would be saved from the consequence of that plague. They would be protected by the blood of this lamb shed for them as God passed through in judgment on Egypt. 
That was the first Passover. And it was instructed to the people of Israel, the Passover meal, to be kept every year at the same time as a memorial, as a remembrance of God's protection and salvation of his people. Every year they were to remember in a physical way how they had been delivered from God's wrath and judgment upon Egypt. To remember God's grace and protection and provision for the people that he had called to be his own and for his purposes. It's interesting to note, however, that Passover, as important a meal as it was and all that it signified, was often neglected by the people of Israel in the Old Testament. As important a meal as this is, it's only mentioned having been, take, uh, having been taken uh, like half a dozen times in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, from the time of Exodus to the time of Jesus, covers about 1,400 years. Six Passovers in 1,400 years. This is supposed to be the most important meal in the liturgical worship life of the people. And it's so often forgotten, so often neglected. We see it reinstituted a couple of times in in really good ways in the life of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah before they were taken into exile under kings Josiah and Hezekiah. As they are leading the people to repent, they reinstitute Passover as part of that repentance, part of that remembering in the life of the people that God saved us one time from his wrath, from his judgment. Don't forget that. Turn and worship to him again. Passover was often neglected by the people of Israel, but not here at the end of Ezra 6 when the temple is rebuilt. And that's really good. Now that the temple is rebuilt, Passover can be shared again, can be taken together as a community of faith again. And they are good. They are faithful to remember God's grace and provision from thousands of years before even to the present day because what God had done uh, for the slaves in Egypt, he has also done for the exiles in Babylon. He's brought them out to be a people for his purpose, to be a people for his glory, to be a people for his fame among all of the nations. And God has done it. So they remember. They remember. What I love about this meal, this Passover meal, especially as it's described in Ezra chapter 6, is that we see that it's far more than just an occasion to remember God's salvation of his chosen people, Israel. It's also an occasion for new people to experience God's salvation through faith and repentance. Look again at verse 21. The Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. Catch this, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. Who are these people that are joining Israel? The Gentiles, people who are not ethnic Jews but who saw what God was doing in Jerusalem in the rebuilding of the temple, who saw the glory of God coming to shine through his people once more. And these people, seeing God's people do what a mission-focused people do, said, we want in on that. Our gods are worthless. This God is worthy. Our gods are dead. This God is living. Our gods are pointless. This God gives us purpose. So we're rejecting those gods and we're joining you, Israel. Your God is our God. We'll worship him only. And they share the Passover as a symbol of God's judgment passing over them, of God's wrath passing over them because they have come to trust him. They've turned from their sins to follow him only. When God does what only God can do, when he causes his mission to be successful, the, the, the results of it are far more glorious than we can imagine. And they lead us to worship. They lead us to remember God's faithfulness. And so I encourage you this way, this morning, church, knowing that mission drift is far easier than you think. And as you fight mission drift with a laser-type focus on God himself who gives us the mission, maintain your mission focus. Maintain vision, maintain sight on the thing that God has given us to do by celebrating God's successes by celebrating God's successes. It has been said, word of wisdom, it's not my own, comes from people smarter than me, that you replicate what you celebrate. You ever heard that? You replicate what you celebrate. The things that are most important to you in life, the things that bring you joy, the things that you take time to remember and to celebrate are the things that you will seek to continue to replicate or to multiply in your life. 
This is an adage that is as true in the business world as it is in the church. There are some things in the church that we have taught ourselves to celebrate and then replicate that are not necessarily mission critical. They're not the milk, eggs, and bread that God has sent us to go get. Things that churches often celebrate that are not necessarily indicators that God's mission is being successful are things like these. Attendance numbers or attendance goals. Budget numbers. Facility size. Facility location. Even the number and nature of programs and ministries that a church has. These might be good things that are evidence that God is working in the life of people, but they can also be things that don't give evidence of mission success at all. At the end of the day, what is an attendance number other than a a, a number, a statistic that tells you how many people showed up at a certain time? I was at the last, uh, the final Lobo basketball game of the season last night. There were probably 10 or 11,000 people there. There's a lot more people than are gathered in many churches this morning. Does that mean that God was being successful, more successful in the pit than he was in the pew? No, of course not. So attendance numbers at the end of the day don't say necessarily one way or the other that God is in something. They can, they, they can give indication that God is doing something, but they can just as easily not. Same with budget numbers. Churches that have big budgets and lots of money to do lots of things do, do not necessarily, having the, all those financial resources, even large facilities, doesn't necessarily indicate that God is doing something there. It at least indicates that a lot of people are giving money to something that's happening there. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the mission of God and the truth of the gospel are going out from that place. Neither do the number and nature of the programs and ministries that we have. How often is it that even we as Southern Baptists have made sacred cows of the particular curriculum that our Sunday school class is happy about or or likes to use? We think about maybe having to give up a particular quarterly or particular kind of lesson plan for something different. And our hackles go up. We get a little bit scared. We talk about maybe changing the style, not changing the style, but, but changing the, the musical orientation of how we lead in worship, not to lead us to worship other gods, but just to worship God with maybe more contemporary music. We can take all of these things that, are, that, that on, the, on their own can be good things or bad things and make them into sacred cows that we bow down and worship to. You replicate what you celebrate. If you celebrate attendance goals, you'll replicate attendance goals that mean nothing other than a lot of people showed up one day. If you celebrate particular programs or particular ministries with dogged devotion to it must be this way all the time, never different. This is always how we will uh, disciple children on Wednesday nights. We'll never change from this. What is that but pride in a particular program or a particular course of curriculum that someone has made? Our intention is not to deliver a program. We want to deliver Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We want to present every man, woman, and child mature in Christ to God. Facilities, budgets, programs, ministries, these are tools that God has given to us. And God has entrusted for us to steward in the, uh, toward accomplishing his mission, which is to glorify himself in the world as we point people to Jesus and make disciples of him. These are tools. These are not the end product, you see. And we need to be able to exchange tools from time to time to get the job done most effectively. You replicate what you celebrate. I would advocate that we commit ourselves to celebrating better things. That we commit ourselves to celebrating things that do show that God is being successful. That that we celebrate things that, that do demonstrate that God is working in his church to make disciples of Jesus. Things like sinners repenting and trusting Christ for their justification to God. Whether it be one or 100, it's worth a party. Believers in Christ, members of our church, increasing in their engagement with uh, their engagement with God's word and their love for God's word. God's word that is worth celebrating. When, when, When you come to God's word daily to be fed by it and you enjoy that time, that's worth celebrating. We need to learn to celebrate when people in our church obey God and deny themselves more regularly and more obediently day by day, defining our priorities by God's priorities and by his word. When people are living in a way that looks more like Jesus, we celebrate that. We celebrate when people in our church are serving God and others sacrificially. When we are loving God most and serving others out of what God has given to us, we celebrate that thing, whether it's one person doing it or a thousand people doing it. We celebrate sharing Christ. We rejoice when people say, I'm trying to share the gospel with this person. 
when people are talking about Jesus, when people are pointing other people to how they can know Christ as Lord, how they can have their relationship with God made right again, we rejoice in that. We celebrate in that. We celebrate when people are exercising faith by taking risks to be obedient to God, by sharing the gospel boldly when it may not be you know, status quo in their workplace or in their family life. We celebrate when people are, are exercising faith in God to do hard things. We celebrate when people are seeking God and in terms of living in a rhythm of worship in their life. When, when brothers and sisters, when our children come to, to faith in Christ and they begin to live in a way that all of their life looks like worship to Jesus, we celebrate that. Whether there's one of them or a thousand of them, it's worth a party. We celebrate when people are building relationships in the church, when they're putting focus on transparency and confession of sin and accountability for repentance and encouragement in the faith. We celebrate those things. When, when, when older men are meeting with younger men and helping them to follow Jesus uh, in relationship together and around God's word, we celebrate those things. We encourage one another to be about that. We celebrate when we as a church are living unashamed in the world. When we live without guards up in our lives, without, without protective walls that we put up in the world. We celebrate when we live courageously as public followers of Jesus. These are the things that we celebrate. These are things that are hard to quantify. It's hard to count increasing engagement with and love for God's word. It's, it's hard to put a finger on exactly if someone's growing or not, but you know it when you see it. And so we celebrate that, we encourage that because those are the things that we want to replicate. We want to replicate God's glory, God's fame in the world and among all kinds of people. And we encourage ourselves to stay mission focused when we celebrate the things that we know accomplish the mission that God has given us to do. It takes a certain amount of bravery, I think, and courage to at the shopping store, the grocery store of faith to say, I've got too many kumquats, too many candy bars, and too many gadgets in my cart. I need to put those back on the shelf and get back to basics. I'm going to put those things back and go for the milk, eggs, and bread that God sent me for. And you get back to sharing the gospel unashamedly, helping others follow Jesus in obedience to him. I need to get back to loving God and his word for how it feeds my soul day by day. And not for all of the trinkets and laser light shows and other things that we can often build to ourselves, creature comforts that we can create for ourselves in the church. Mission drift is easier than you think, but God is gracious to keep us on track. He does it in his word. That's why we proclaim it each week. Mission success is far more glorious than you can imagine. Two nights ago, I wasn't going to share this. I'll share it. Two nights ago, um, I had a dream. I don't put a lot of stock in dreams. Um, I do in this one. A dream that was like a high school reunion. And uh, at the high school reunion, I saw a lot of my friends. I used to hang out in high school. All of us have kind of moved off to different places. And uh, there, this reunion was a good friend of mine. Again, this is a dream. It's not reality. But a good friend of mine, his name's Jim. And uh, we were good friends in high school. Uh, Jim's not a believer. Tried to share the gospel with him uh, in high school. Uh, he even uh, condescended to come and hear me preach a sermon when I was 18 years old here in this church. And... Um, it was not a good sermon, but Jim sat through it because he was a friend. In the dream, Jim and I were talking, uh, uh, just catching up on life and what was going on and how things were going. And he mentions just in the dream, he mentions matter-of-factly, he says, he says, yeah, 17 years ago, my wife and I decided to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and this, is a, this is a dream, okay? It's not, a, it's not reality. God, I wish it were. But in that moment when, in the dream, my friend Jim, who I've been praying for for years and years, said, I, I trusted Jesus a decade and a half ago. In the dream, my heart burst with gratitude to God because he, he called someone that I deeply cared about to life and to faith in Jesus. In my dream, I, I embraced Jim, and it was so awkward because Jim is not a touchy guy. And, and held him close as a, as a brother in Christ, just... Ear to ear, I said, thank you, Jesus. And I woke up. I woke up really excited. I woke up celebrating that God had brought someone to faith in a dream. Now, I don't know where Jim is at spiritually today. He lives thousands of miles away from me. 
But dear friend, I want to celebrate that. I want that. I mean, I woke up with a renewed passion to speak boldly about Jesus to people that I know who don't know him. I felt like in that dream, God gave me a foretaste of this is mission success. It's It's not a worship center filled with hundreds of people for multiple services on a Sunday morning. No, Stephen, success is this, when lost people repent of their sin and trust Jesus as Savior. Stephen, this is success. This is life. This is ministry. This is what I've called you to do. Dear friend, dear church member, Christian, will you commit with me to say, I want that? I want that vision of success, Jesus. I want that vision of success, Lord. Whether we have 100 or 100,000 members of our church, we don't care. We want faithfulness to Christ. We want lost people saved. God set our hearts and our minds on the mission. Dear friend, if you don't know Christ today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, know this. He has a purpose for your life. And his purpose for you is that you would be right with him. That you would have peace with God, knowing that all that you have done to separate yourself from him has been covered over, taken care of, atoned for, nailed to the cross in Jesus. God sent his son to make you right with him if you would only trust him. Give your life to him as Lord and Savior, as king of your heart. Dear friend, you can enter into the mission of God today by trusting Jesus as Lord, by turning from your sin. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of response, a song we've already sung earlier this morning. I pray that you would make the words of this song the prayer of your heart. But I also invite you to come, to move this morning. We have a hard time doing that in Baptist churches. Sometimes we think the response time is just for people who aren't Christians that need to be. No, friend, we call it a response time and not just an invitation because we all need to respond to God's word every week. We all need to have our hearts retuned, reoriented around the mission of God because the mission matters most. And when God accomplishes his, his mission, it is far more glorious than we could ever imagine. So we're going to stand together in a moment as we sing. And I'm going to ask you to be brave, to come forward, maybe spend some time in prayer, asking God to reorient your heart around his mission, our mission as a church, which is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Make this song of response, this time of response, a real time of response in your life. Put feet to action. Do what you need to do to obey God today. If you need to trust Jesus for the first time, I'll be here this morning. I'd love to receive you, uh, pray with you, help you know how you can have assurance that you are right with God through faith in Christ. Whatever God's calling you to do, don't delay. Obey quickly and let's celebrate what God is doing. Let's pray.